Michael Pollan wrote a book a few years ago called Cooked, and it's subtitled A Natural History of Transformation. And then Netflix turned that book into a documentary. And in the documentary, Poland talks about his findings and then what he calls, quote, the enduring power of the four classical elements to transform the stuff of nature into delicious things to eat and drink. And the four elements that he's able to identify or that he identifies for the purposes of his book and documentary are fire, water, air, and earth. And so Pollen's curiosity leads him to wonder what it might look like for humans to return to the methods of cooking leading up to right about the 1950s. And he travels to places where people are still practicing some of these methods. My favorite, my personal favorite is when he goes to kind of the aboriginal lands of Australia and he goes to some neighborhoods in India, some of the slums there. He goes to some small towns in Italy and learns how to cook old, old world um, Italian food. He goes to some old world style bakeries that are located here in the United States. And then, of course, he has to travel to the wooded hills of North Carolina. Of all these exotic places, he also goes to North Carolina. And um, during his time visiting these places, he learns how to make these things like sourdough bread and unpasteurized cheeses. He learns how to brew his own beer, and then he makes pulled pork with this makeshift outdoor oven that's kind of fancied together with about two and a half rolls of aluminum foil. For what it's worth, Pollen finds people who seem to be happier with their lives when they live within the simplicity of it. Um, And as I interpret it, you know, this is a byproduct of trying to create some separation from what has become a hectic lifestyle. And instead of spending more time uh, doing those things that take us away from our families, our communities, and they just bog us down with uh, feelings of guilt and shame, he he makes this opinion that things are better when we're gathered in circles around tables of food within those communities. And I think he's right, um, clearly. So uh, here's what I like about this documentary. First, it's about food, and I like to eat. But more importantly, it's about building community around food. And Paul in himself indicates that his original interest in researching food was to be able to spend more quality time with his own son. And it's about researching Uh, pardon me, and it's about uh, being together, and I really like that. Uh, But the whole four-part series is what the overarching theme is, uh, is really about slowing down, right? So it's about slowing down and then taking the time to plan and prepare something with great intentionality with the simplest ingredients that are available. An observation. Uh, that I have had through our culture with about maybe the last decade or so so, is that there's this growing contingent to get back to the things that don't feel so processed and or corporate. Um, People are more drawn to things that have a tendency to be slower than the current pace of society as a whole. And even longer than a decade ago in the mid-80s, there was this organization started in Italy called Slow Food, And Slow Food began out of a protest where they were trying to build 
a McDonald's at, in Rome on this landmark, next to this landmark called the Spanish Steps. And so slow food was started out of, out of that thing McDonald's trying to do. So while I don't think we can say for sure that this is a widespread movement, uh, because we're living in the age of Amazon and we get stuff delivered to our, to our doorsteps and we have everything that we need from the touch of a screen, there is some evidence to indicate that this slowing down and this pulling away from a cookie-cutter lifestyle uh, is something that people are, have a growing interest in. So first, in addition to this documentary I'm telling you about, Michael Pollan has written numerous books on food that encourages readers to get back to the slowed-down way of doing things. Secondly, if you've been paying attention to things in our city, you've noticed that you can no longer drive through this town uh, without passing a local brewery or a local coffee shop or something that says they have artisan this and artisan that or craft this and craft that. Um, And these places have turned into... uh, arenas where people are having meetings and they're doing their work and they're spending time together uh, with, with, their, with their communities. And even a few, few of these breweries have opened up co-working spaces during the day. And this is another indication of that pullback from the mainstream. Third, uh, social media was billed to us as this new way of connecting with your friends. And although that might be true, simply from a wording standpoint, there have been some studies this year and over the last couple of years, really, that people are starting to pull away from that in, in an effort to become emotionally healthy, right? Everybody takes a Facebook, Facebook fast every once in a while. The, the term Facebook fast, people know what I'm talking about when I say that, is an indication of that thing that's really happening out there. And then we've also seen some evidence of this movement in our churches, And you might have heard of something called the slow church movement or the parish model movement. And these ideas, which truthfully aren't necessarily new, uh, were were birthed out of some sort of pushback toward mainstream culture. And there are these two guys in Indianapolis who wrote a book called Slow Church explaining some of the details surrounding this movement. And then three other guys wrote a book called The New Parish, and they're talking about what it means to live in community with each other. And there's also another movement called, you know, to live in a missional community, which has its own, its own uh, bent on these ideas. As a matter of fact, there's a church in my neighborhood that was known as Shiloh Methodist Church. Recently, it changed its name to Incline Missional Community to show a, a sort of a, a bridge with these ideas and what the church wants to do in that neighborhood. There are a litany of other resources claiming to be able to, to help you slow down and enjoy your life. Um, so in regards to some of the talk inside churches about this slowed down approach, there has been an increased interest in some traditional liturgical uh, church practices. And one of those practices is Advent. And I don't want to make any assumptions about who knows what Advent is, so I want to give you a bit of an abridged explanation. Um, so it's an old tradition that started a long time ago, probably about the 5th or 6th centuries. And Advent has been practiced by the Catholic Church for a long time. Uh, so again, it isn't necessarily new, but it is this thing that people have more uh, of an interest in, and it's representative of some of the things that I'm talking about here today. So Advent happens to be the start of the liturgical year. And 
subsequently the liturgical church calendar, which is basically uh, a calendar of Christian holidays followed by some uh, denominational churches and some non-denominational churches. It has seasons and feasts and celebrations, uh, some of which can correspond to this wide range of colors that give you some indication of what mood you're supposed to be in or how you're supposed to be feeling when this season comes up. So if you've ever participated in Advent, then you've seen that there is a, a candle lighting. And I think there are, there are three purple candles and there's one pink candle that get lit uh, during the weeks of Advent. And the lighting of these candles happens to uh, coincide with the, or be representative of light coming into the world. So Advent is the season in which the celebration of the birth of Jesus takes place. The word itself, Advent, means the coming of or an arrival, which is to say something is coming and it's going to be great. It's anticipatory. They're waiting on it with great anticipation and they know that we know that it's going to be good, right? And that thing that we're waiting on happens to be Jesus, the birth of Jesus, right? Um, So the first day of Advent starts, it's next Sunday, December 2nd. Uh, It's four Sundays outside of Christmas Day, and that marks the Advent season. Did I accurately describe what Advent is? I mean an abridged version of it. All right, cool. Um, so So what this does for people who celebrate Advent is that it places them in us in a period of waiting, right? It's symbolic in that we're waiting for the birth of Jesus, which, of course, has already happened, but it's literal in some ways because we're currently waiting for his return. So the idea for us is to slow down and reconnect and to be thoughtful about what we're celebrating during the Christmas season. I have found things like this to be really helpful, particularly when it comes to the season of Christmas because we have Thanksgiving and we have Christmas music on November 1st. And it's just like the start of the season that goes, and it's just hectic, right? And then we have Black Friday, and then we have this crazy four-week period leading up to Christmas. And then just like that, it seems like it's all over. And how do we feel? I don't know sometimes how we feel. But I have found that a slowed-down approach and some intentionality with this feels really good, especially during this time of year. So... What I would really like for us to try to do here is to explore two aspects of celebrating Advent and really uh, what it's like to live well as a Christian in waiting. And I think that we can do that by revisiting the original plan to reconnect us with God. And just like any slow-cooked dish, we have to start with a recipe, right, or a plan, if you will. So we're going to talk about the plan. And then the second part of what we're going to be talking about is the preparation. So what does it look like to prepare that recipe? Or maybe alternatively, we'll talk about waiting well. All right, so the plan, the recipe, what is it? The plan, in its simplest form, is a rescue mission uh, from God. And we're going to talk about this aspect here in the coming weeks a lot more, but I just want to give us, again, a brief overview Um, going into this series that we've got called The Waiting. And really, I want to focus on the fact that there was always a plan to reconnect us 
with God. And so what's great about this story in my mind is that we can go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and talk about creation, and now we're on page three, right? So the creation story in Genesis is this account of where there's nothing, and then all of a sudden, there's a lot, and it happens real quick and in a hurry, right? If you take the creation story literally, it happens in a period of six days, and it's just this crazy flurry of activity where there's nothing and then everything comes together and then the universe is here and then there's mountains and there's trees and the water is separated from the land and there's the sun and there's the moon and there's night and day and all of a sudden really fast really quickly it comes together and it ends with the creation of man woman and everything under the sun we're living with god in this marvelous garden and we have not a need in the world We have direct access to God because there's no separation between us. But as the story goes, of course, we screw it up and we allow sin to enter the world. And as soon as we do, the entire thing comes to a grinding halt. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike. I'm sorry. He will cru- yeah, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So leading up to this verse, most of us know this story, right? This is a story of Adam and Eve. And the Lord comes into the garden, and he's looking for Adam and Eve, and they've eaten from the tree, um, and he's looking for them. And he's like, hey, where are you guys? And they're like, oh, we're hiding. And he's like, why are you hiding? Well, we're naked. Okay? Who told you you were naked? And Adam's like, you know, that woman that you put here (laughs) took that fruit, and she, she ate it, and then she offered some to me, and then God goes, enough. This isn't gonna be fun, but I know how to fix this. None of us are going to like what's about to happen here, but I know what to do. And the first thing he does is he curses the snake. Then furthermore, he gives us a key to the future. So the last part of this verse, uh, verse 15, biblical scholars have interpreted verse 15 as this passage that's seemingly a Christ prophecy, right? I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her. He, Jesus, will crush your head and you will strike his heel, right? So he will crush your head. Basically what God is saying is here is that I'm going to send my son. This is part of my rescue mission. Yeah, he's going to die. He's going to suffer the consequences for this. But in three days, he's going to come back to life. It's an early prophecy of what's to come for God's people. God already has a plan, right? And as soon as we mess up, God is scheming for us. Why? Because we were created in his image. He loves us. He can't be around all the bad stuff that we're doing, so he creates this separation. But he doesn't hang us out to dry. Yes, we messed up, but he's got a plan to rescue us from the very beginning in the form of Jesus. And this is the thing that people are waiting on. This is the thing that the people of Israel are waiting on, the Messiah. And at times, the waiting is painful. But they've been given the plan, and they know what's to come. But 
as you might have guessed, this is where the waiting comes in. So we get this plan, now we're going to wait. And after we understand the plan, what do we do? I mean, waiting is this common theme throughout the Bible. Abraham waited many years for the son that he was promised. The Israelites waited 40 years in the desert. I mean, we've got the entire book of Job, where he's just waiting out story after story after story. Um, There's 400 years of silence in between when we had the last Old Testament prophet to the birth of Jesus. And people are waiting for the Messiah to come. And then Jesus dies, and they've got to wait three days, excruciating days, for his, his return. I mean, the Bible is just chock full of these stories of waiting. And uh, so here's the deal, man. The only thing I could think about when I was thinking about this and writing it was Tom Petty. The waiting is the hardest part. So I want to tell you that, man, that is the truth. The waiting is the hardest part. Tom Petty got it right. And people grow impatient from the waiting. Um, of which there are, there are plenty of stories uh, about people growing impatient from the waiting, right? We've got Adam and Eve, David and Bathsheba. I mean, Peter is routinely jumping the gun, chopping off ears and whatnot because he just can't settle down and wait on what's coming with the Lord. Waiting around sucks, man. Unless we know what it means. Unless we know what we're waiting for and unless we know how to prepare, right? So the question is, what does waiting look like? Knowing all of this, all of this waiting and anticipatory things that are going on, it would only make sense that we have some instructions on how to wait well. And my thought for you today is I want to talk to you about what it's like to be prepared. Um, And in the story I'm about to read, Jesus is talking here, and he is the master and we are the servant. And this is the second story that you can find on page 701. And it's Matthew 24, 42 through 51, and it says this. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time, the night, what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Truly I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, my master is staying away for a long time. And then he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards. I love the stuff that's in the Bible. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the end is pretty dark, right? <laughs> like, you get through and you're looking for some hope and you're like, oh my gosh, where is it? But Jesus does this because I think he's trying to say, like, hey, man, uh, like, this is really important. (laughs) So he uses this imagery because he's really trying to make a harsh point for people. Um, Jesus is commanding us, uh, commanding our obedience to his teachings. But he's also making a strong point about how this thing is supposed to work. He's not asking us to be idle in our waiting, but rather he's asking us to be active. Uh, And also... There's an explanation here that's like, 
you know, as hard as waiting might be, I want to tell you that it's worth it, which isn't always easy for us to hear. I mean, if you've ever been stuck in a waiting period, you know how frustrating that can, hear, that can be to hear sometimes. But that is what he's saying right here. As hard as it is, it's going to be worth it. Anyway, um, this isn't the type of waiting that we're talking about when you're waiting around in the doctor's office. Jesus is asking us for this active waiting in anticipation of his return. In short, we're waiting again for his second arrival, right? And since we don't know the day or hour, he's asking us to be on top of our game when, in fact, it does happen. Um, planning, we know the plan, and preparing, we prepare, right? So what are some action steps that we might be able to take in order to try and make all this stuff, all this stuff uh, stick? And I think the answers, at least for today, are going to be as simple as those two words, planning and preparing. So planning, how do we plan? Um, third, third verse in the Bible today is from 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, where Paul is giving us some instruction on, uh, on how to prepare ourselves, and, or pardon me, on how, to, on how to plan. He says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are about to make you wise for salvation through Christ, through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the nature of simplicity and getting back to what it really is um, to live a simple lifestyle that's pulled back from all the hectic, na- the hectic nature of our society as a whole. One of these things that we can do is read our Bibles, which I know sounds like a Sunday school answer, but it is the truth. We can dive in and start to learn some of these scriptures and to understand the plan that, that Jesus has given us um, in order to live better lives and to spend eternity with him, right? So we study the scriptures on our own and also with each other. Uh, We have three Bible studies that I know of that are happening at this church, two for women and one for for men. If you're not already interested in those things, or if you're not already participating with those things and you are interested, I would invite you to find out the people that are leading those and to ask them how you might be able to be involved because it's one thing to study on your own. It's another thing to do it together where people might have done it longer than you or uh, maybe you need some help with some things and just that processing really, really helps, right? Uh, So we can read and we can study. Um, And the reason that we're doing these things is just so that we're, we're ready, right? We're ready to prepare. And that brings me to my next point, preparation. So, preparation for me is, I'm wired to think that the preparation part of this is a bit more important than the planning. (laughs) So, and that's just the way I think about stuff. Um, And my reasoning for that is, first of all, I'm an extrovert, so I want to be doing something, right? I want to be out with people. I want to be talking about things. I want to be just living in community with people. And that's just the way I'm wired, right? Um, but second, secondly, and maybe more importantly, I 
when I read through the New Testament and I hear Jesus and how strongly he rebukes the Pharisees for knowing what they're talking about but really not ever doing any of it, I think he's really trying to make a significant point there. And, and I take that to heart because, um, I mean, I went to Bible college for, for three years and I still want to be the person who's out there living. So in my mind, it's one thing to have this recipe. It's another thing entirely to make the food taste good. And that's the preparation part of this that, that just makes sense to me, right? But both things are important. And, and I think that we do ourselves a favor by doing both and not just one or the other. And there are a lot of things that we can, that we can do to prepare, right? And maybe you've already got some ideas about what those things look like. And for this, what an, an example of what it looks like to be truly prepared goes back to the food theme, right? And it looks like the fruits of the Spirit for me. So in Galatians 5, through 24, that's the fourth text, it says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. That's what I think it looks like to be well prepared. Um, So we're going into this series about Advent, right? And over the next four weeks, we're going to talk about some of the things... Um, we've, we've got the, there's a 400 year waiting period. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the relationship, um, uh, that Mary has with some people. And then we're going to talk about Zechariah. So that's what we're talking about leading up to, uh, Christmas Eve. And my encouragement to you guys throughout this series is really just to go back to the simple way of doing things, uh, we don't, we don't have to live this life of, of hectic, of, of hect, with hectic behavior, right? We can draw back from that, and we can make things simple. As simple as reading your Bible and talking about it with other people and then living that out. So that's my encouragement for us as we head through December and we head through this series. That's all I've got. Let's pray. Father God, uh, we thank you for your church and for the birth of your son. And as we go into this time of celebrating that and uh, the practice of remembering what it was like to be waiting on his, on his arrival, God, we just ask for um, a patience that only you can give us. God, we are thankful for you and we are thankful for your church. And God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.